well, now I'm all thrown off because he already told you to go to 1 Peter, so what am I supposed to do? But he didn't tell you where in 1 Peter. So go to 1 Peter 79. Just kidding. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 and continuing our study here in First uh, Peter. So if you are here and you don't have a Bible, uh, the back table where the mugs are, there's always a Bible back there that you guys can grab and keep as our gift to you. So please, if you came and you don't have a Bible this morning, please take advantage of that. Um, so glad to be with you all. So glad to be preaching uh, God's word to you this morning. So before we get started, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would uh, give us grace this morning, Lord, to see your word and to see your truth clearly, Lord, to understand, Lord, what you have done and what you are calling us to as believers, Lord. I pray uh, that in all of this, we would, uh, we would be able to see you clearly and live for you more fully, Lord, that your glory would be spread throughout uh, this whole area and throughout the world. Uh, as we seek to honor you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, last week, Joel finished up the first major section in the book of 1 Peter by talking about how we as Christians are building our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ and how he is the cornerstone of our faith. Joel talked about how Christ being the cornerstone means he sets the direction and the priority of everything else in our lives. With this in mind, the verses that we're considering this morning mark the beginning of the second main section of the book. And this section can be summed up with one word. And that word is conduct. As God's people, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves? Put another way, what is the way that we are supposed to live in the here and now. And this section, which starts here in chapter 2, verse 11, and goes all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, we are given very specific instructions about how we ought to live. And the context of these instructions is really the key and connects us all the way back to how Peter describes his audience at the beginning of the book. He describes them as elect exiles. You see, the question that this section seeks to answer in part is this, how are we as spiritual exiles among the culture we live supposed to live among the people around us? As we read this book of First Peter together, I can't help but see parallels in this book to the first six chapters of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. See, the book of Daniel begins by telling us about how the mighty king of Babylon comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. And he takes away many of the precious riches of the temple with him, as well as thousands of hostages from Jerusalem. And we learn that among these hostages, he took some of the children of the nobles, who were, as Daniel 1 describes, youths without blemish, who were skilled in all wisdom, understanding, and learning. So he took the best and brightest future leaders of Judah and he brought them back to Babylon to be his servants and to learn the Babylonian language and literature. Now imagine this with me. The future leaders of the nation, removed from their families, 
from their religion and their future essentially cut off. Brought in to live as pagans and serve a pagan king. And you've probably heard some of their names before. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And a major tension of the first six chapters of this book is this. How do we live as God's people among a nation whose values and virtues are not ours? And the answer we're given from these chapters is twofold. On the one hand, we see that their work and their way of life was so remarkable that they rose among the ranks of the Babylonians to the point that it says in Daniel 1 verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. But on the other hand, we see that their allegiance to God brought conflict and persecution. Each one of these men would face trials that would threaten their lives. They had to choose in a moment, will I obey God and likely be killed? Or will I obey the law of the land and live? And ultimately, their decision to obey God in these circumstances led to incredible displays of God's power seen by even the mightiest kings of the day. How does this connect us to 1 Peter and to this passage here? And how does this connect to our own lives? Well, we've seen already that a repeated theme in this book is trial and persecution because of the Christian's devotion to live for God. And just like the original readers of this letter, we too are spiritual exiles. We too live in a society whose values and virtues are often in conflict with ours and threaten our physical and spiritual well-being. So how are we to live in light of this? How do we interact with the unbelieving world around us? Well, here's what I trust this passage will show us this morning. As his people, God wants the way we live to represent his excellence to the unbelieving world. I'll say that again. As his people, God wants the way we live to represent his excellence to the unbelieving world. So let's read this passage together. 2 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So how do we see from this passage that the way we live ought to represent God's excellence to the world around us? Let's look at the first section, and I've entitled this point that the way we live is motivated by who we are. The way we live is motivated by who we are. This passage begins with two different phrases that Peter uses to indicate our identity as Christians. He calls his readers beloved and then urges them to live as sojourners and exiles. What do these phrases tell us about our identity? Well, let's unpack each one. First, we are beloved. This is a title of sincere love and affection. Some English translations render this word beloved uh, as dear friends, which is helpful 
But I think beloved better captures the closeness and the affection that's meant to be conveyed with this term. Think about this. Beloved is the term that the disciples heard audibly spoken by God about Jesus himself. We saw this in Jesus' baptism in Mark 1, verse 11, and we saw it again on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9, verse 7. And this is a phrase that the New Testament authors all adopted in reference to the believers that they were writing to. James, John, Paul, and here Peter all use this term when addressing the Christians they were writing to. This term is meant to be a reflection of God's own heart for his people. He sent his beloved son to die on the cross for our sins so that we would be forgiven and brought into his family. We are now beloved children because of what God has done for us in Christ. And it's important to see this here because it colors everything about this exhortation that Peter is giving us. Peter's exhortation here is an urgent encouragement given to those who are already dearly loved by God. And if we don't see this, we're going to miss Peter's intention behind this entire section. If you're here this morning and you're new to the church or new to Christianity, I want you to know that we call ourselves Christians because we believe that we are people that have been known and loved by God. We believe that the love of God for us is clearly evident through the life, the teaching, and the death of Jesus Christ, which he himself made clear was for sinners like you and me, so that we could become God's beloved children. As we connect this into this section, we see that these instructions are not so that we would come and earn something before God, but so that we would live in the freedom and privilege that God has given us as his children. The second phrase that Peter uses here is sojourners and exiles. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has used the phrase exiles to describe the recipients of this letter. He did this all the way back in verse 1, chapter 1. The connection here is not meant to be a comment on their legal citizenship status, but it's meant to describe the spiritual citizenship they now possess as God's people. They are those who were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and who were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 9. This indicates to us that our spiritual conversion has fundamentally changed our relationship with the culture that we live in. We are now, first and foremost, citizens of the kingdom of God. Our allegiance is to God's kingdom. But where is God's kingdom? It is simultaneously nowhere and everywhere. That is to say, no earthly kingdom is God's kingdom. And yet God's sovereign rule is everywhere, especially in the heart of the Christian. There is no earthly kingdom whose values and practices will perfectly align with God's own. In effect, Peter say, is saying that the way we ought to see ourselves in the world now is as aliens and temporary residents. 
What would that have meant to the original recipients of Peter's letter? Consider Karen Job's comments on this. She says, Foreigners in the ancient world, whether in residence or just passing through, did not fully participate in the customs and practices of the host culture. Foreigners had neither privileges nor the responsibilities of citizens. Their foreignness was observable in ways that preserved their own identity. Foreigners abstained, sometimes by their own volition, sometimes because they were not legally entitled to participate in the customs of the host society. Now, this concept actually connects us to a common theme of our faith heritage, going all the way back to Genesis, to the life of Abraham, who saw himself as a sojourner and alien with the people he lived among. Hebrews 11.10 speaks of this reality when it says that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The challenge here for us is that we should not expect to find a perfect home among the culture we live in. As God's people, it is inevitable that there will be times where the values and the practices of our culture will clash with God's call in our lives. When these moments come, our calling is to represent God's kingdom by adhering to his rule on our lives above any earthly authority. I've been watching football since I was a little kid, and I'm a big Eagles fan. Now, I can appreciate watching virtually any team play, virtually any team. <laughs> but ultimately, no matter, no matter what, I'm, I'm going to root for the Eagles to win. Now, I have a brother-in-law who is a huge Cowboys fan. And in case you didn't know that, okay, yeah. In case you didn't know from the cheers there, the Cowboys are the Eagles' uh, most dire rivals. They're the biggest rivals and have been historically. Um, now, I can have intelligent conversations about football with my brother-in-law, and I can even talk to him about the Cowboys team and how they look and their new coach. I can even watch a Cowboys game and appreciate the skill they show, etc. But ultimately, I'm an Eagles fan. So if the Cowboys and the Eagles play each other, there's no question. I'm rooting for the Eagles. Now, friends, as we interact with the culture around us, there will be many things that we can appreciate and affirm and enjoy. But ultimately, when the priorities of our culture clash with those of our God, our devotion must always be to King Jesus. If we take this all together, what do we see? We see Peter's exhortation is coming out of a heart of love for us. And he wants us to see our identity as spiritual exiles in the world as motivation for how we live. It's when we see ourselves this way that we understand his instructions to come about how we ought to live in the world. Which brings us to the next section. And the next section shows us that the way we live is at war with who we were. The way we live is at war with who we were. Now we get to Peter's exhortations in this passage. And his first exhortation is to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So the first thing we're urged to do here is to hold back from or keep away from the passions of the flesh. What does he mean here by the passions of the flesh? The words of this phrase taken individually mean 
the desire or lust, and natural or carnal. If you have a King James version of your Bible, you'll see it translated fleshly lust. Peter Peter actually uses similar phrasing elsewhere in this book, and looking at those might help us get a good sense of what he's specifically referring to here. The first time he uses a similar phrase is in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, when he says, we should not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but instead that we should be holy in all our conduct. And then later in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Peter exhorts the readers to no longer live for human passions, but instead to live for the will of God. When we hold this together, we get a picture of what Peter Peter means by the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh are the natural desires and impulses that we devoted ourselves to before we became Christians. Our desires for things that are forbidden and our excessive indulgences in things that, though in and of themselves may have been good, we made the ultimate thing. The passions of the flesh are the passions and desires of our sinful nature. It is the opposite of living for God. And we see even within this definition something alluded to that Peter draws out clearly here. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Now what does that mean? When we think of the soul, oftentimes we think of our ethereal essence, that that piece of us that lives on even when the body dies. However, Peter's usage of the word throughout this book is more comprehensive than that. The soul is meant to convey our whole being, not only our spirit, but also our body and our desires and affections. It's meant to convey the very thing that gives us life. Now think about this with me. What is the goal of making war with something? The goal of making war is to conquer that thing, whether by gaining complete control or by destroying it completely. Friends, this is absolutely crucial for us to understand because because I think it's often our tendency to excuse certain areas of sin in our lives. There can be areas that we deem minor or maybe, well, this is kind of part of my personality and then we become complacent in seeking to grow in those areas. But this doesn't work if the goal of that sin is to bring our whole being under its control. I have often found in my own life that excusing or ignoring sin in a particular area inevitably inevitably bleeds into affecting other areas of my life and my very affections themselves. At the beginning of this year, I had a really lazy week. I was telling the guys in my small group that my week was both physically and spiritually a picture of me sitting on the couch, eating junk food, watching TV late at night. And I think that's basically what I did every night that week. And you know what? I found that it didn't just affect me physically with low energy, weight gain, general lethargy, but it affected me spiritually. I struggled with spiritual dullness. I found myself easily spending inordinate amounts of time on trivial things like checking and reading sports blogs 10 plus times a day because things change that quickly, right? Friends, this passage tells us that this outcome should not be surprising to us. 
It warns us that we don't have the option to be neutral with sin. We must be fighting sin or else it will be gaining increasing control over our affections and actions. And friends, as I was studying this passage and and reflecting on this section, I felt burdened that maybe God was putting his finger on this area for us as a church. Friends, in Jesus, we are a new creation. And as a new creation, God is calling us to set aside our natural desires, inclinations, and ways of thinking that seem natural to us. Instead, we must be willing to put every behavior, every desire, every inclination, and every tendency at the feet of God and give up whatever doesn't line up with his call on our lives. We do this when we set things before the light of God's word, and wherever those things don't line up, we must give up our own way, whatever it is. However closely we feel it is to our own identity. And friends, I am saying this with trembling, aware of how often I myself excuse my own thinking and behavior because, quote, this is who I am, rather than putting it under the microscope of God and his call on my life. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, these things are not you anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. He has given you the power to become that new creation. You are his beloved. We see by his blood poured out for us that we can be redeemed and made new. So friends, let us all strive to set our entire lives under subjection to King Jesus and not settle for any of our natural desires that do not align with God's call in our life. As God's people, we are called to live in a way that does war with our sinful desires. And it's as we fight this fight that we are able to also live in a way that is a witness to others. Which brings us to the next section. The next section will show us that the way we live is a witness to the world around us. The way we live is a witness to the world around us. So let's start by reading verse 12 again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the second part of Peter's exhortation here, even though in the English translation it comes in a different sentence, it actually seems clear that he's meaning to connect the two thoughts. A better way of saying it might be, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. A better way to see this connection might be to say, keep away from the passions of the flesh and hold fast to honorable conduct. This indicates to us that the way we live is not just about what we keep away from, but positively what we occupy ourselves with. And what we ought to occupy ourselves with is that our conduct would be honorable. John MacArthur points out that this Greek word here for honorable implies the purest, highest, noblest kind of goodness. 
It means lovely, winsome, gracious, noble, and excellent. And this is the way that God always intended his people to live. Consider Paul in his letter to the Ephesians where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or again, in his letter to Titus, where he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Here's Peter himself referencing a command from Leviticus 11.45 that's spoken of so often in the Old Testament, it was a defining saying to how God's people were called to live. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Or Peter again, this time referencing Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. Turn away from evil and do good. Now the context of this winsome way of life is important also because we are called to live this way among the Gentiles. What he means here by Gentiles is not simply the non-Jewish people around him, but specifically those that are not Christians. This indicates to us that there's an expectation that our conduct would be commendable even by the standards of the unbelieving world around us. This means that our work ethic, the way we treat others, the way we raise our kids, the way we spend our time and money, the way we admit when we're wrong and apologize, the way we relate to the poor, the way we talk about people we disagree with, you name it. In all these things, our love, humility, joy, and integrity ought to stand out to the people around us who observe and interact with us. And there's an implication here that is worth drawing out. God expects this life, uh, uh, God expects us to live a life that is observable to non-Christians. I think this is helpful to reflect on in, in light of our call earlier to stay away from the passions of the flesh. Because if all our focus is on what we keep away from, there's a temptation for us to overemphasize a life free from exposure to the world outside of Christian circles, to live in holy huddles. Friends, this does not seem consistent with God, God's expectation on how we ought to live. It certainly doesn't seem consistent with the example that Jesus himself gave us with his own life. But here's the thing. Even though we may live the most commendable life possible among our neighbors and coworkers, there's an assumption in this passage that living this way will expose us to persecution. He says we ought to live such honorable lives so that even though they speak evil against you as evildoers. What's he saying here? He's saying that there will be times that we will be slandered and falsely accused of wrongdoing. Now, later in this section, Peter's going to elaborate more on this, so I'm just going to say one thing about the why. Our persecution will sometimes be a reaction against the way we are living for God in contrast to the values of the world around us. Mark Dever sums it up like this. Christianity is not fundamentally an argument over doctrine. It is an argument instigated by the way you, your new life says to your non-Christian friends, 
there is a different way to live. People do not like that. And so you, the Christian, appear strange. You will appear strange. And sometimes this will mean that you will be slandered and persecuted. Sometimes that persecution will come because the way you live your life will be viewed as a threat. That was the case for Daniel, as we learn in Daniel 6. See, as Daniel grew older, he rose to become one of the highest officials in the entire kingdom. And even there, he distinguished himself among his peers. But this caused his peers to view him as a threat, and they sought to destroy him. Here's what it says in Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They couldn't find fault with his life, so they sought to find fault with his religion. I think this connects to our passage in an important way, because I think 1 Peter 2.12 shows us that by living commendable lives before others, it will actually act as a defense, a witness for our defense against the accusations of our accusers. I love the way commentator J. Ramsey Michaels puts it. He says, the only way to refute accusations of wrongdoing is to do good. What's beautiful here is to see that the effect that this way of life will have on those around us. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what in the world is the day of visitation? Well, in both the Old and New Testament, the day of visitation and language like it was used to refer to the day that God would judge the earth, that he would ultimately bring justice, punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous. The day of visitation is an allusion to the day that Christ will come as judge and call his people to himself. So what does it mean then that they will see our good deeds and glorify God on this day of visitation? Well, it seems that what Peter is trying to say here is that by observing our way of life, even in the midst of persecution, some will come to believe and be saved. This seems to be supported by the fact that Peter here is clearly referencing Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, God intends our life to be a powerful witness to the world around us. And the hope that he gives us is that as we seek to live beautiful and compelling lives before the unbelieving world around us, 
He will use our witness to bring some to Christ. Our way of life will be a powerful tool, along with our words, to draw people that do not know him and bring them to saving faith. This is a powerful motivation for us, is it not? Friends, don't you want others to come to know Jesus? Don't you want your, fr- your family, your friends, your co-workers to come to know the peace and the joy and the hope of trusting in him as their Lord and Savior that you know? Then friends, live lives that honor him, that are commendable to those that do not know him. As we come to a close this morning, let's consider how this passage all fits together. As God's beloved children, living as spiritual exiles in the world, we are called to fight sin and live winsome lives in the world as Christ's representatives to those around us. Now notice here, we're called to live this way, not to earn approval from God, but to spread the good news that he has shown us. We are called to live this way so that we can be used as God's messengers in the world. And God intends to use our witness to display his excellence and to draw unbelievers to himself. We can look ahead to the day where we will be singing the praises of King Jesus surrounded by those who come to know Christ through the witness of Christians like us. In the life of Daniel, this witness became a miraculous one. Once his enemies couldn't find fault in his way of life, they set up a trap for him by convincing the king to make a new law, banning prayer to any god but the king. And when Daniel predictably refuses to stop praying to God, he's convicted and he's sentenced to death by being thrown into a pit of hungry lions. But God powerfully and miraculously rescues Daniel. And after observing the faithfulness of Daniel and the power of his God to protect him, the king makes a decree. Listen to what he says. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, People are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. Friends, we may not face persecution like Daniel faced. And we may not carry the same widespread impact that Daniel carried with his life. But we can be confident that as we seek to live for God, he intends to use us to display his power as the deliverer and rescuer of souls. May he use us as his instruments to multiply his kingdom in the hearts of men and women who come to know him as we have known him, as our heavenly father.